I want to review briefly from last week. So we started a couple of weeks ago with uh, our sermon series on together and answering the question, why do we do what we do when we get together? Really, we should be asking this question, I think, pretty regularly, um, evaluating if, if we're upholding the Word of God in our worship time, uh, in our personal time, uh, when we gather, what we do matters. And so that's why we're evaluating these different things. And the last couple of weeks, we've looked at why together, why not just worship God individually all on your own. Last week, we talked um, more specifically from Ephesians chapter 5 about why Christ came. Jesus came for the church. He gave himself up for the church. Not so individual Christians can just remain isolated from one another and do their own thing, but for the church to be united in its gathering. Jesus loved his bride so much that he willingly gave him himself up for her. And so our feeling is, my feeling is, if, if he had such a high view of the church, we should too. We should care about what happens when we gather, and we should care about doing it regularly. Hebrews chapter 10 showed us that. Verse 25 specifically, why we shouldn't neglect meeting together regularly because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of the blood of Jesus. And then Paul lists like five different things because of Jesus as our high priest. He lists like five different things of what the church should be doing. We're not going to look at all of those. Go back and listen to the message or better yet, read Hebrews chapter 10. But we're told don't neglect getting together because it does something for us. Because it helps us in so many different ways. We need one another. And so as we go through this week, we're talking about why we preach. Next week, Jason's going to preach on why we pray. We're going to look at why we baptize, why we give. All of these things, we're, we're evaluating why because it means something. And so Christians, I would say, the overall goal of the last two weeks, setting up the table for where we're at and where we're going, my goal was to just thoroughly convince you that you need the church. Really, you do. To function in a way that God blesses, that God ordained, you need the church. And here's the simple truth. The church needs you. Because guess who makes up the church? You. You are. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the people of God in a group. The church is not just an optional club that we join when we have enough time or when we have the energy or any of those sorts of things. It is a group that you were purchased and placed into. God bought you with the blood of his son and then placed you into a body. It's not optional. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 17 is a, I'd use the word sobering text. It's a sobering text. And you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But it informs why we preach. And it informs my view as a pastor of why I do what I do. Let me just read that quickly. This is Hebrews thirteen seventeen. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. As an elder here, I have to give, I will have to give an account 
for every member of Ramsey Creek Baptist Church. That's what that text means to me. It says, I'm going to have to give an account. And this is one of the primary reasons why our church still has a traditional membership role. Okay, that's why we still ask people to come in and join with us. And we have an official membership. Uh, Lots of churches don't do that. And we believe that it's helpful because it allows for the elders of the church who oversee the spiritual care of the flock and feed and nourish the people. This doesn't mean that I'm responsible for all of your actions. But it does mean that how I've cared, the leadership that I've given, uh, that's what I'm going to be held responsible for. I, I don't do this perfectly. I don't do this well at some points. But by God's grace, I want to do it better and better. But let me say this in light of that. If you attend the corporate worship gathering, we're talking about Sunday morning pretty much. If you attend that infrequently and are not plugged into the life of the church, how are the elders of the church supposed to care for you effectively? That's one of the benefits. That's one of the privileges of being a part of the church of God is that there's care and oversight and love and direction being shown. But how do we give that well if there's inconsistency, if we rarely see you? This text, to be quite honest, is all the motivation I need to come and talk with you when I haven't seen you in a while. Hey, what's going on in your life? Notice you haven't been at church. If you get that kind of a message from me, please don't be offended. I'm not condemning you. I'm not saying you're a horrible person. I just care about you. And I want to know what's going on in your life. I want to know where you are and how we can serve you better. How we can reach out and show love more effectively. Because it says, keep watch over your souls. That's what the text says. And because of my love and care for you and because of the value that Jesus puts on the church, I also want to value you in that same way. I want you to taste and experience the goodness that happens when we gather together with one another. Because it's a beautiful thing to see. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. Now, I feel like, at least in my view, and I hope this is widespread understanding, we've tried hard over the years here to make a point of saying, hey, when we give an offering, it's an act of worship. When we have corporate prayer together, it's an act of worship. When we read scripture, it's an act of worship. All of these things that we do in our worship time is an act of worship. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 says everything we do, we do for the glory of God as believers. Whatever we do is for the glory of God and is therefore an act of worship. So let's kind of uh, flesh that out for a minute. What does that look like? Well, when you take a meal to the new mom and you encourage them in the Lord as you give them a meal, that is a spiritual act of worship. When you uh, give up your evenings, many of you did this just a couple weeks ago, when you give up your evening every day during the week to serve at VBS and to serve the kids in our church and our community, that is an act of worship on your part. When you visit with a hurting friend, maybe you're at a baseball game for your kids and your friend is hurting 
and you visit with them and you, you don't just pacify them with, well, it'll get better, but you actually challenge them and encourage them to seek the Lord. That is an act of worship. And so that leads us to our first point in your notes. It's this. I believe that God transforms the routine acts of everyday life into spiritual acts of worship when we give him first place. When he is the point, when he is the reason why we do these things, that's a spiritual act of worship. But without intentionality and without practicing doing that, those moments can just kind of flitter by without any purpose. And so we have to be careful to grab a hold of those things. Guys, when we encounter God in, I would consider these beautiful moments, even though they're regular every day, when we encounter God in those moments, um, it's, it's awesome. It's fantastic. But our experience with God is actually different when we gather together as Christians in a group. Our gathering together as the body, we experience God in a different way. And we really talked a lot about that last week. When we gather for corporate worship, we see God more fully. This is why, think back, Old Testament, New Testament stories, the church gathered, God's people gathered to do what? Man, in the Old Testament, people of God gathered, they stood in the sun and listened to somebody read scripture for hours and hours and hours. Now, we're not asking you to do that, thankfully, on a day like today especially, but people gathered to read God's word and to hear it being read. They gathered to hear preaching and teaching. In the New Testament, you see Peter preaching for a long, long time, deep into the night. People stayed and they listened. We see people gathering in the New Testament. Paul wrote letters to churches to rebuke them, to correct them from false doctrine and errors. They gathered together to read these things. And we gather together to worship. When we get together, we not only hear from God, I think we hear from one another as well, though. And that's the point that I'm getting at. We hear personal testimonies. We hear words of encouragement. Sometimes we do hear rebuke and correction from one another in the body. That's, that's church discipline, brothers and sisters. Believe it or not, that's church discipline being played out. And that's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. The Bible puts it this way. They says iron sharpens iron. When we get together, it's a collective iron sharpening. That's what we do when we get together. You, you all know me. My oldest son is 10 years old. He's going to be in, is, I have in my notes fifth grade. Is that right, Nikki? That seems crazy. Yeah. Uh, so he's going into fifth grade this coming year. Uh, we have, uh, been working in math specifically. So we've been working in the last year. We talked about fractions. We talked about a uh, pretty big multiplication. So it's not just one number. It's like three numbers times three numbers multiplication. We got started on hold your breath, long division, Whew. right? These are big things. And, and for a, a fourth grader, that's a challenge. Okay. So imagine that my son, who's going into fifth grade, I, I drop a calculus book in front of him. And I say, all right, Emery, by the end of this school year, 
I want you to know everything in this book. What would happen if I did that? There'd, there'd probably be a lot of tears. Um, but I would have, I guarantee you, I would have a frustrated and defeated student really quickly. Why? Well, he's going to be upset with me. Uh, and really, he might even want to walk away from math. Like, I don't even want to do math ever again. If this is what it's like, I don't ever want to do math again. He's going to be disgruntled. He's going to be angry. He's going to want to walk away, maybe from learning in general. Why on earth would I expect him to be able to handle calculus on his own with only the skills that a fourth grader possesses? It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. He would need regular and consistent instruction He needs to progressively build up his understanding of math in order to conquer calculus. That's, we get that. That's, that's an easy thing to think. Now now let me flip this just a minute. Why on earth do we think that we can handle the tough things in our life by ourselves with only the limited understanding of God that we have personally? And yet we do. So many of us think that. Why do we, though, think that we can miss out on regular teaching, regular encouragement of other Christians, and still be prepared for everything life throws at us? Because adults, if you know anything, you know life is hard. So why are we so dependent on ourselves? There is, I believe, a God-ordained value in the church gathering together as a body regularly that we shouldn't want to miss out on because it guards our soul from frustration and despair. Think about it. Think about how many people are frustrated and just want to walk away from the church altogether because they think they should know it all. They don't understand. They need constant teaching, constant encouragement, and they need to build up their understanding in the context of the church. So just like I'm not going to throw a calculus book down in front of a fifth grader and expect him to know it all, we shouldn't expect to know it all without brothers and sisters in the church giving us that constant encouragement and training. Uh, So when we gather together, we hear from God, but we also hear from one another. But I want to caution us and just kind of explain this for a second. When we hear from one another, we certainly shouldn't hear anything that God hasn't already said. Okay, let me explain that a little bit deeper. When you go to Sunday school, the Sunday school teacher doesn't just teach whatever they feel. They teach timeless truths from the Word of God, stuff that God has already given us. The friend who's having some some problems in their life, we don't just pacify them with, you know, Christian-y words and plateaus of whatever. We actually challenge them in the Lord using the truth of the Bible. The preacher doesn't just preach whatever he enjoys preaching about. He is bound by God to preach the word regardless of his preferences. Bound by God to do that. So we teach and we challenge and we preach the words and truths of God because guess what? My words, your words, our words... Our truth are vastly lacking in comparison. And sometimes 
we're just wrong. Sometimes we, we just get something in our mind and we are just so far off base. We need a brother or sister to smack, up, smack us upside the head in love and say, I love you, but you're wrong. It's not easy to do. And yet this is part of the joy of the church. We can do good things through the Spirit, through the indwelling Word. And that's, I would say, the only way we can do good things. The words and thoughts and truths that come from inside you and come from inside of me are not sufficient to build up the church in the way that God says it should be built. Only the eternal words and truth of God can provide those things for His people and for His church. And I think... I think the disciples got this. I think they understood it. If you remember, Peter says something to the Lord in John chapter 6. Jesus had just told this hard truth and people just walked away. Everybody just walked away. And he looked to the disciples and he said, are you guys going to walk away too? And Peter, on behalf of the whole group, says these words. He says, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. I think we have this same view when we say, Jesus, our words don't have the power to bring about anything special. Only your words mean anything. This brings me to the subject really of today's talk, which is why we preach. If you think about it though, God, God's people have always been created and sustained by his word. We, we see this at the very beginning. How did God create with his words? He spoke things into being. So from creation all the way to when he called to Abram, to Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones, to the coming of Jesus Christ himself, God has always created and sustained his people by his word. His words are the ones to be concerned with, not our own. And so this is why we preach when the church gathers. We want to hear from God, as Jason said. We, we, but we don't just want to hear from God because James makes a distinction there. He says, be hearers, but also what? Be doers of the word. So we not only want to hear from God, but we want to be changed by God. And so the hopeful and expectant result of all of the preaching at Ramsey Creek Baptist Church is changed lives. That's what we desire to see happen out of the preaching. And yet we're not naive enough to think that any one of our sermons is like the silver bullet. We were I was talking about this with a pastor the other day. And it's not like one sermon is just going to fix everybody. You know, we don't believe that. We believe constant encouragement, constant teaching, but we believe that our lives will be changed. Even little by little, we will be changed. So it's not smart people or well-read people or people that seem like we have it all together. We know the preaching is right when the church is living out what they hear on a Sunday morning. Because their lives are being regularly affected by his word. The president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, his name is Al Moeller, he says this, Rightly understood, true Christian preaching is not aimed only at this earthly life, but is the means whereby God prepares his people for eternity. The weight of God's word is more than this life alone can handle. 
it rings in eternity. The, the preacher's job, and I realize that I'm speaking to and about myself here, but also you understand, so you understand, the preacher's job is not just to see the truth in the text and then present it as an option. Okay, the, the preacher's job, my job, is to see the truth, yes, but to savor it, to love it, to enjoy it, rejoice in it, and then explain it in that way and apply it for you as the listener. That's the task, sometimes seemingly monumental task, that lies before a pastor preacher. To see and love the text so much so that I communicate it and it does the same thing to you. It has the same effect on you. It's not until biblical preaching has been applied to a specific person's heart that any real life change will occur. It has to be applied. You can hear every word that is said from the stage today and not be changed in the least bit. We all understand that because it's happened before in our own lives. It has to be a genuine change inside that the Spirit brings about. And this kind of preaching, the kind of preaching that we aim for here is expository preaching, expositional preaching. And basically, whatever you've heard of that, whatever you understand of that concept or that word or that phrase, it just boils down to this very simple definition. It just means that the point of the text that's being preached is the point of the sermon or is the point of the scripture. Okay, the point of the scripture is the point of the sermon. Okay, that's what it means. We are saying only what God has already said. It's easy, Jason talked about this with the children, it's easy for somebody to pick a topic and then find Bible verses to support their theories and their ideas. It's easy to do that. And unfortunately, that's how false teachers take root. That's how cults get started. They take the gospel, they take scripture out of context. But in expository preaching, the preacher is a slave to the text. And his job is to minimize his own opinions and exalt the truth of God. That's my desire. That's the elder's desire when we preach is to minimize our opinions and exalt the word of God. So that you no longer care about what Rod has to say and you care about what God has to say. Okay? The preacher is forced to preach what is written in this book and can't avoid the difficult passages or major on the ones he likes the most. It keeps us balanced. He should preach in a way that enables the congregation to see that the points he is making actually come from the Bible. And I realize that I have yet to do that today. Okay, I realize that we're going to get there. I promise you. But I want to caution us and just point this out too. If you can't see that a preacher's points are actually coming from the Bible itself, then your faith is going to end up resting on that man and not on the Word of God, not on God Himself. So the goal of this kind of preaching is, in essence, let God's Word do the work. I don't have to convince you. In fact, I can't convince you. No preacher on TV can convince you of the truths of God. Only the Spirit of God, the Word of God, can do that. It's not the preacher, it's God's Word that shapes a congregation of individuals who will bring God glory. Mark Dever, he's a 
pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He's written a lot of books, and he wrote one called What is a Healthy Church? And in the context of preaching, he says this. Expositional preaching is not so much about how a preacher says what he says, but about how a preacher decides what to say. Is Scripture determining our content or something else? Expositional preaching is not marked by a particular form or style. Styles will will vary. Instead, it's marked by a biblical content. It's not about the style. It's not marked by a style of preaching. It's marked by what is being preached, the biblical content. And so, this is why we regularly preach through, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, books of the Bible here at Ramsey Creek. This, This is... The fundamental reason why, because it's the biblical content that we're concerned with, not the form or style of it. It's why we study books from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've looked at books of history, books of narrative, books of the law in Genesis, Jonah, Exodus. We've looked at books of prophecy like Daniel and in youth group a year or so ago, we looked at Zechariah. We looked at the epistles, some letters to the churches in First and Second Timothy, Jude, James, and we looked. We just got done with one of the Gospels in Matthew. We're convinced from Scripture that there is an immense value in systematically preaching through books of the Bible. How many of you parents out there have a picky eater? Anybody? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Okay, I thought there'd be a whole lot more. We've got a picky eater. And I told her I was going to pick on her this morning, but Isla Jane is our picky eater, right? Is she in here still? Hey, Isla. Isla, what's your favorite food? Mac and cheese. (laughs) Mac and cheese. So you put a plate of mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and finish it up with a bowl of ice cream, and she will eat all day long. You'd think we have the best eater, but you start throwing some greens on there and uh, some some beef or something and not quite so much. Um, so let me ask this question. So think about picky eaters. If, if Nikki and I, if we're good parents, what are we going to do? If we're not, if we're not treating our children the way we should, we just give them like every meal, Can't, whatever they want. Oh, you like that? That's terrific. Have it, right? And so a good parent, one who cares well for their kids, what are they going to do? They're going to make their kids eat vegetables and fruit and be healthy. Not all the time necessarily, but at least balance their diet well, no matter whatever the favorite food is or not. And so, just a glimpse inside the Omas home, there are meals when Isla Jane does not eat that much because she's picky, and we love her anyway. But if, let's, let's now flip that thought. As a leader in the church, as one who we've already talked about, as watching over your eternal souls have a hand in that, would I be doing a good job if I only gave you from God's word what you enjoy? I think in order to have a healthy believer, a healthy church body, you guys need to sit under preaching that looks different and sometimes that you don't like to hear. 
Just like we don't give our kids ice cream and mac and cheese at every meal. We give them vegetables because we know it's right for them. We know it's good for them. It's healthier for them to have a balanced diet. This is why we preach this way and through the books of the Bible that we preach. Because it's healthier for you. You may not always like that though. Sometimes coming to church and hearing somebody preach about something is like eating a big old stalk of celery. Nobody likes that. No, you don't, Noah. You only like it if it has peanut butter on it or something. No way anybody likes celery plain. Oh, you guys are killing me. It's terrible. It's terrible. Celery is the bane of our existence. So a a loving and wise parent will do that for their kids. A loving and wise church leader will do that for the church. And so as we sit under a diverse, balanced diet of teaching and preaching regularly, we expose ourselves more and more to the fullness of God's word. When the church makes a habit of sitting under expository preaching together, the results, I believe, will be a productive, powerful, and purposeful church body. And that's what we want. So we've talked about what our preaching should look like, how we should preach, but yet we still haven't really answered the question, why do we preach? When we gather together, why does someone preach? And so that's going to take us into the word. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 17. Follow along with me if you would. Romans ten fourteen through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, as good Bible students, we want to remember to consider the context of these verses. We don't just want to pull it out. In chapter 9, in Romans 9 before this, and even in chapter 10 before the text that we looked at specifically, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he is telling them about God's sovereign choice and salvation. God's in charge of it. It's not based on our goodness, on anything he sees inside of us. God is sovereign in salvation. There is no distinction, Paul also says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, Gentile or Jew. This was a struggle that they had in the church. And he says, when it comes to being saved, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13 of chapter 10 says that. So then after that, he starts, he launches into this list of, you guys know what rhetorical questions are, right? Parents ask them all the time. Why did you do that? Yeah, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, Kids can't answer it half the time. Paul asked these rhetorical questions. We kind of know the answer, but it's for a point. So look at his logic in these things. Kind of follow along what we read in verse 14 through 17 together. He says that people will call on Jesus to save them only if they believe that he can. Belief in Christ cannot exist without hearing about him, knowledge of him. One hears about Christ only when someone else proclaims the saving message. The message about Christ will not be proclaimed unless someone is sent by God to do so. This is why Paul, this is why the early church were so passionate about spreading the gospel 
to their neighbors and to the ends of the earth. This is why they were so passionate about preaching, about teaching, about discipling and sending so the gospel would reach the uttermost places of the earth. And though God's eternal attributes, we looked at this passage a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter 1, God's divine nature and eternal attributes can clearly be seen in creation. Right When you go out on that deer hunt or you go out on that lake, you can see the beauty of God in creation. It's designed for that purpose, to point us back to Him. But not everybody is saved through that kind of general revelation, are they? We know they're not. There's lots of people who can appreciate a sunrise who don't really genuinely know the Lord. That's not how people are saved. General revelation is not how it works. So Paul and the early church believed that the only way for somebody to be saved was to hear and believe in the gospel. To hear it and then believe it. In chapter 1, verse 16, you know this verse of Romans. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's not ashamed of it because the gospel has the power to save. Romans 10 teaches that in order to be saved, there's some things that need to happen. That's what we just looked at. So we want to be informed by the text in order for our lives to be changed. And so it says that someone must first hear the gospel in verse 14. Verse 10, 9, 11, and 14, it says that we someone has to then believe the gospel. In verse 13, we have to call on Jesus. Well, how can anyone call on Jesus if they've not ever heard? And how are they here unless someone preaches? So someone has to actually preach before this gets set in motion. No one will hear unless someone preaches, verse 14 and 15. So this is not only the thrust of global evangelism, local evangelism. This is why we preach every Sunday. We preach every Sunday so that sinners might hear the gospel and believe. That's why. Because we're in a world full of sinners. Not only that, we preach the gospel so that the body would build, be, be built up. I want, I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 11. Go ahead and turn there with me. Ephesians 4.11. So we preach so that sinners might hear the gospel and believe, but we also preach so that the body would be built up. Listen to Hebrews 4.11-16. through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul lists the gifts given to the church in different places. But here, in this text, he's not necessarily talking about gifts as much as he is talking about gifted leaders, right? He lists the apostles and teachers and uh, 
trying to find it there. Prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. He's talking about gifted leaders. So what's the purpose in God giving those kinds of men and women to the church? Well, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Also in verse 12, for building up of the church body. Verse 13, for unity and for maturity in the body. And verse 14, to protect the church from false doctrine. Look at the blessings that God has given the church through gifted leaders. But let me say this. Leaders in the church do not exist to do all of the work of the ministry that goes on in the church. What's the very first purpose that's listed there in verse 12? They exist to train and equip the church for the work of the ministry. Now, you may, when you hear a pastor read this verse, you may hear it as, see, I told you this is why I shouldn't do all the work. That's not how I want to come across. I want us to understand our purpose in the body. Because, brothers and sisters, I'm a church member just like you here. I have just as much investment in Ramsey Creek as you do. And so I want us to do things biblically. And so it doesn't rely on ministry leaders to do the work of ministry in the church. We are constantly, leaders are constantly to be training and equipping you for the work of the ministry in the church. Scripture never endorses any kind of model where the pastor or teachers or the hired guns are the ones doing all the work in ministry. It's not in there. That's not how the church is supposed to function. Those kinds of people, they train the church to worship, to disciple, to evangelize, to baptize, to serve in any number of ways. As the church listens and responds to faithful preaching, we're going to be united under the Word of God and should be maturing more and more. Right? So the more that we hear faithful preaching, we mature more and more. I praise God for you out here, dedicated church members who've stepped up in so many ways, especially in the last year or two, stepped up into so many ways in ministry. You're leading, you're directing, you're volunteering, you're giving your time, you're sacrificing your energy, you're, some of you, giving money, extra money to help keep things going. At our last members meeting last week, we talked about where God has brought us in the last year. And we looked at one of the ways that God did that was in our, our budget. And our, our projected budget for the last year was way up here. Our actual income, like w- what our church collected, was a lot further down. But our expenses, our actual expenses, was right on. Over the course of a year for this big of a group, it was within $100. How on earth? No one could plan that. I mentioned this at the meeting. Our, our household budget doesn't come out that clean. And yet God in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his display of faithfulness to the church is taking care of us. And so we get to see and understand that together. And I praise God for all of you who have sacrificed. And I I would encourage you to continue to giving yourself up to the Lord for these purposes. Now, if the spirit is convicting you in your heart today, maybe I'm not involved as involved as I should be. I would encourage you, grab one of our pastors, grab a ministry leader, a Sunday school teacher. We'll love to sit down and say, hey, 
what's, how are you gifted? Tell us your story. How's God gifted you? Okay, well, how, how can we get you involved in the life of the church? Okay, we want to be careful to not just stick you in any old position. We want to be careful to try to place you where God has gifted you because that's where you'll maximize your effort. And that's what we want to see. We want to be firing on all cylinders here. So God uses gifted leaders to train you for the work of the ministry, to build up the church body for unity and maturity in the body. But he's also given gifted leaders to protect the church against false doctrine. We really talked about this when we preached through First and Second Timothy. I think we talked through Titus. We talked about how the major role in those books, Paul was telling him, hey, protect the truths that you've heard. Protect against false doctrine. Think about this. If a church has an overwhelming number of, of immature believers or maybe is riddled with argumentative and quarreling members, it's going to be more susceptible to the tossing winds and deceitful, deceitful schemes of this world. And that's what he says in verse 14, 15, and 16. If a church is guided by these things, they're going to fall into all kinds of errors. And so we need men and women who are guarding against that and solid, gifted leaders guard the church against this danger. So we preach that the church will be built up, but the preacher, I want to make sure we understand this, the preacher is not the one building up the church. It's not me. It's not another pastor or elder. Look at verses 14, 15, and 16 again. So, the Greek verb here literally means to speak or act truthfully. Let me read that. 14, 15, 14, 15, and 16. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that the church builds itself up in love. So the Greek word here for speaking the truth in love is it actually means to speak or deal or act truthfully. It refers not just to speaking, but also to acting in accordance with God's word in every area of life. The truth of God's word. So when believers live out God's truth in speech and in action, the church builds itself up in love. When we're all doing what we're called to do, we build ourselves up in love. But really notice who causes the growth here. It's not the gifted leaders that were already mentioned. So it's not the preacher. It's not the church members who are volunteering, though they all play major roles. Verse 16 says that we're all working together. Look at what it says. The head is who? Christ. Jesus. He's the head. He's the one that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is why we preach so that sinners might hear the gospel and believe. And so that the church might understand its role in the ministry that's going on here and be built up by our head, Jesus Christ. He is the leader. He is the shepherd of Ramsey Creek Baptist Church. The church listens to the preaching of the gospel every Sunday when we come together because it's the primary means by which sinners are saved 
and by which the church is built. This is what Paul says in his letter to the Roman church. This is what Paul says in his letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, preaching is the primary means by which people are saved and by which the church is built up. Preaching of the word, the preaching of the word is vital to the lifeblood of the church. And so when we get together on Sunday mornings, that's why we preach. That's why you listen is because it has huge implications for not only salvation, but every area of your Christian walk. So it's important. It's vital to the lifeblood of the church. And yet, if you judged it in a lot of our congregations today, you wouldn't think that. Um, A writer for the London Times wrote this just a couple of years ago. They said, In many places, in many churches... This most vibrant of moments, talking about the preaching, this most vibrant of moments has withered to little more than 20 minutes of tired droning that serves only to pad out the gap between hymns and lunch. Is is the preaching just the, the pad, the stuffing, the blah that fills our gaps between singing and when we go and eat? It's become that way sometimes. Preaching is vastly important. And yet, I also want to point out, that's not the totality of the church. We don't only preach. Because if that's all that you have, I don't think you really have a church. If all you have is preaching, I don't think you really have the church. Because the church is a body that cares for one another. Is a body who minister to to each other. Preaching is vital, but it's not the only thing. As a good parent would for their children, we need a well-rounded understanding and diet of not only preaching, but seeing worship in other ways, like giving, like singing. And that's why we're talking through these things this month and next. So let me break this down to some application as we're winding it up. If you're a member of the church, if you're a member of the church, let me just just ask you this. Is this your view? Is this your understanding of your, your position as a church member? That it's that your, it's your responsibility for the ministry of the church? Let me follow that up with another question. Can we be effective in that if we're not here regularly? Are you plugged in and active in submitting yourself to the preaching of the word and the fellowship and accountability of your brothers and sisters here in the body? If you're content with just, you know, nominal church attendance and little desire for being with brothers and sisters in Christ, I'd encourage you to evaluate your priorities. Set them around the Word of God instead of around the busy individualistic culture that we have all around us. Reorder your priorities if you have to. I've heard over the years wonderful examples of church members at this church that have done that. And it has been a sore subject with their families when they made that transition. It has been a sore subject with things at school when they've made that transition. When they've said, this is not my top priority anymore. The Lord and the people of God are. That's a countercultural move. I would encourage you to that, but also caution you that it will cost you something. It's going to be difficult. 
but it will be worth it. Those of you without Christ here today, I hope that what we've talked about, the kind of church where it's not just about the one guy at the top, but about everybody working together, hand in hand, arm in arm, I hope that that kind of thing is attractive to you. It's not a country club. We don't pay our dues. We just love one another. I hope that that kind of relationship with other people is attractive to you. And I hope to see the image of our church be transformed into that more and more. And brothers, sisters, I see it. I see it when I talk with you and I hear about what God is doing in your life and it gets me excited. And I hope that we see this kind of behavior and mindset here more and more. But if you've not submitted your life to Christ, you aren't a part of that group. As much as you may want to be, as much as you may desire that in your own life, God has to do the placing, not us. We, can, we will love you, but God has to place you into his family. But here's the thing. The moment you say, I want that. The moment you say, God, I want to be a part of your family. Forgive me. Set me on the right path. Make me devoted to you. Man, his arms open up and his family just got one person bigger. The moment, I'll remind us of what Paul said. He says, anyone, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's hope for you. I would pray that if you're hearing this and you've not called on the name of the Lord, that you would do that today and be saved. He's ready to welcome you into his family. And we're ready to welcome you into our family as well.